Genesis chapter 38. We're going to begin reading in verse 12. <laughs> in verse 12. And again, this is the word of God. In course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her. And went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the colt prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, No colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila. And he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. And therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So we are back in Genesis 38, a strange and difficult chapter. Uh, I don't know of any Christian yet that I've ever met who would say that Genesis 38 is their favorite 
chapter of the Bible, uh, one they count precious. I love Romans 8. I love Psalm 23. I love Genesis 38. You don't, you don't hear that. But this chapter does have a glorious truth to teach us. I want to begin tonight by relating to you an account that I first heard from a lecture that uh, John Piper gave many years ago. And as I was preparing this message this week, this account came back to my mind. So I went digging for it and I found it. And uh, it's an account from the life of the great missionary Adoniram Judson. And if you're familiar with Adoniram Judson, you may have heard this story, but I think you'll enjoy hearing it again. And it falls right in line with the doctrine of our text tonight. Adoniram Judson was a, uh, a bright kid. Uh, his mother taught him to read in one week when he was just three years old so that he could surprise his father when his father returned home from a trip. Uh, Judson became a student at Brown University when he was 16 years old. And uh, he entered as a sophomore, graduated the top of his class. Judson had been raised in a Christian home. But while he was at Brown University, he met another student whose name was Jacob Eames. And Eames was a deist. He believed there is a God up there somewhere, but he has little or nothing to do with this world. Uh, Deists believe that Christianity is a lie and that heaven and hell do not exist and that we ought to accept this world only as what we see. Well, Eames... This deist became Judson's best friend in college. And through Eames's influence, Judson left Brown University having rejected the Christianity of his parents. He kept this a secret until his 20th birthday. And when he turned 20 years old, he declared to his parents that he was not a Christian, that he would not embrace their faith, and that he was going to move to New York where he wanted to write plays for the theater there in New York. That's what he did. Uh, in New York, Adoniram Judson fell in with a, uh, a traveling troupe that went from place to place, uh, performing dramatic acts. Uh, Judson describes this as a time when he was a vagabond and lived a, a reckless life. After a while, he became disillusioned and unsatisfied with that kind of life in New York. And it was during this period that he visited his uncle who lived in Sheffield. And to his surprise, his uncle was not at his uncle's house, but instead there was a, a young man. He described him as a pious young man. And this young man was not only a committed Christian, but one of the best kind, one marked by friendliness, one marked by kindness. And his conversations with Adoniram Judson left an impression on him and began to make him wonder, Maybe his deism wasn't true. Well, the very next night as he was traveling home, he was staying in a small inn in a small village. And the innkeeper came to him to his room and apologized to him. Uh, the innkeeper warned him that his sleep that night would probably be disturbed because there was a very sick man in the next room. And throughout the night, Judson heard people coming in and out of the room next door. He could hear the moaning and the groaning of the patient next door. And as he listened, Judson thought about what would happen to that man if he were to die, and whether or not that man was, was ready to die. And Judson began to think about the fact that he too was going to one day die. And 
He called himself a deist. He supposedly didn't believe in heaven or hell as the Christians did. But as he listened to to this person suffering in the room next door, he couldn't get these nagging worries out of his heart and out of his mind. Well, the next morning, Judson was leaving, and he asked the innkeeper if the man next door had recovered from his sickness. He's dead, was the innkeeper's reply. This is how a biographer of Adoniram Judson tells the rest of the story. Dead, Adoniram was taken back. There was a heavy finality to the word, and for an instant, some of his fear from the night before made itself felt once more. Adoniram stammered out a few conventional phrases common to humanity when death takes somebody nearby, and then he asked the inevitable question. Well, do you know who he was? Oh, yes. He was a young man from the college in Providence. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. How he got through the next few hours, Adoniram was never able to remember. All he recalled afterwards was that he did not try to leave the inn until some hours had passed. Later, however, he found himself on the road, continuing on his journey home, but not remembering how he came to be there. He was aware of only one word tolling in his mind like a bell, the word lost. Lost. In death, Jacob Eames, his dearest friend, was lost, utterly, irrevocably lost. Lost to his friends, lost to the world, to the future, lost as a puff of smoke is lost in the infinity of the air. And if Eames' own views were true, neither his life nor his death had any meaning. But the coincidence of his dying on the other side of a partition from Adoniram in a remote country inn, in a remote village, was it simply a meaningless incident in a plan too huge and too impersonal to take account of individuals? Suppose Eames had been mistaken. This is what Adoniram was thinking. Suppose the Scriptures really are true and a personal God really exists then Jacob Eames is already lost in the most desperate sense. For already this moment, Eames knew his error too late for repentance. Knowing his mistake, regretting it with a bitterness which no human could ever possibly imagine, he was experiencing already the unimaginable torments of hell. And any chance of remedy, any chance of going back, of of correcting, was lost, eternally lost. And thus, the pattern in Adoniram's shocked mind. He, uh, she, she writes, Courtney Anderson, his biographer, writes this, that hell should open in that country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, his dearest friend and guide, from the next bed. This could not, simply could not be pure coincidence. Well, of course, it, it wasn't coincidence. It was the providence of God. And the providence of God of having his best friend, unbeknownst to him, die in the very next room was the providence that God used to drive Adoniram Judson to the gospel and to salvation. You see, we talked this morning about the main doctrine of Genesis 38, that God sometimes saves the unlikeliest people in the most unlikely of ways. God answered the prayers of Judson's parents in a way they would never have imagined. 
we see God's providence at work and the way He drew Adoniram Judson to Himself. And what we're to see in Genesis 38 is God's providence at work in the way He drew Judah to Himself. It was strange. This is not how you or I would have scripted for this to occur. Yet God, through a pagan woman, in a pagan context, used strange and deceitful circumstances to bring humility to Judah's soul and to give him a heart ripe and ready to return to his father's God. Now this morning we began to see very vividly that Judah was not the kind of man we would expect to repent and become a follower of the true God. Judah's life was marked by deception, by lies, by hatred, by jealousy, by lust, and by greed. We left off with his wicked acts towards Tamar, his daughter-in-law. He was responsible to care for Tamar, but instead of caring for her, providing for her, taking her into his home, instead he sends her back to her parents' home. Now he did promise that when his son Sheila was old enough to be her husband, she would come back and be given to Sheila, that she would be well cared for and that she would be restored to her proper status in society. But when he told her this, he was lying. And he knew he was lying. He had no intentions of fulfilling this promise to Tamar and even superstitiously blamed Tamar for the deaths of his wicked first two sons. And so now we pick up in verse 12, and some years have passed. Sheila is now old enough for her to have been given to him as his wife, and yet Judah has failed to keep his promise. Look back at verse 12, and let's see what happens. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hera the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law was going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself up and sat at the entrance to a name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So just stop there. Judah's wife, right? We don't ever know her name, but she's called the daughter of Shua. Judah's wife has died. The time of grieving for her has passed. And Judah is now on his way to oversee the shearing of his flocks. And on his way, he is going to pass very near to the home of Tamar's family in a little town called Enaim. Now, several years have passed. Tamar is still in widow's garments. According to the customs of the time, Tamar was to be a widow until the day she was given to her late husband's brother. She was not free to marry any other man. She was not free to be proposed to by any other man. According to the laws of the land, she was obligated to wait in widow's clothes until the day that Sheila came for her. And in that culture, she was left to bear the shame of being without husband or children, to be looked upon as a cursed woman. And this was all because of Judah's deception. He made a promise to her and left her in a situation that she would not come out of until he kept his promise, or until she died. Well, Tamar, seeing that she's stuck in her circumstances, decides to take matters into her own hands. Now, she does not do this in a godly way. Remember, 
She is a pagan woman. She, she did not grow up in a Christian home. She hasn't had Christian influences. This is an unbeliever thinking and living in an unbelieving way. What she does here is give Judah a taste of his own medicine. He had deceived her. She is now going to deceive him. What Tamar does is disguise herself as a cult prostitute. Uh, cult prostitution was very rampant in the ancient world. Uh, certain men and women were set apart by the culture to be used sexually in worship of the pagan gods. Being intimate with these cult prostitutes was meant to arouse the gods so that fertility would be increased for the people of the land, for the animals of the land, and for the land itself. And we now see just how fully Judah has rejected his father's God, that he now participates and acts like the rest of the pagans around him in this society. Now, of course, Tamar is not really a cult prostitute, but she has put on a veil to, to be a disguise, to make her look as though she is one. Look at what happens in verse 15. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Um, it's worth noting here that in Hittite culture, Assyrian culture, uh, in the laws that we have found through archaeology, we know that it was the law of the land that if a woman's husband died and all her, his brothers died, the woman's husband's brothers had died, it was then the responsibility of the father-in-law to take the woman as his wife and to give her children in the name of her dead husband. Now, it's interesting, when God gives the law to the people of God at Mount Sinai, that part is not included in His law. He does not go that far. In fact, God declares that kind of relationship incest and says it is sin. Uh, it appears, though, that Tamar's ploy was to deceive Judah into fulfilling the laws of the land at that time, to get a child from the male line of her late husband. Again, she's not acting righteously or praiseworthy, uh, but this does help us to understand what she's after. She's trying to get Judah to fulfill the obligations of the law that were upon him. Now, Judah had not planned to hire a prostitute, and we know this because he doesn't have any payment with him. Uh, his lust took over. As we saw this morning, he has a problem with this. He sees Tamar. His lust takes over. He's unprepared. So he gives her these three pledges and says, With these three pledges, I am guaranteeing to you that I will send payment to you. Now, the first two of these pledges go together because in the Hebrew, it's literally your seal and its cord. Um, the seal was a small stone or metal seal, a little round, uh, almost coin-like looking thing, but it would bear an emblem, and this emblem was worn on a cord around your neck. It was basically a kind of necklace that people wore. 
And the emblem was meant to be a symbol of the identity of the person who wore it. It was a family crest, so to speak of. Uh, The other pledge was Judah's staff. And this staff also would have a marking of some kind, probably the family emblem or the name of the man who owned it carved into the staff. In fact, archaeologists have found many of these staff heads with names etched into them throughout the ancient Near East. And so apparently this carrying of a staff that identified who you were was very, very common in the ancient world. And so uh, through the giving of his uh, signet and its cord, through the giving of his staff, he's giving away emblems of, of who he is. And these items, by the way, were considered very valuable and precious Uh, to the family. Verse 20. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Uh, Judah is a wealthy businessman, and he has just entrusted some very important and valuable items to a woman that he believed was a prostitute. His concern is his reputation. Uh, When his friend comes back and says the woman was not there and the people of the town don't know of that kind of woman there, immediately this uneasy feeling begins to creep up on him. Um, He may now realize that this woman was not a cult prostitute at all, and if so, he may be thinking that she duped him in order to steal his items, because again, those items were valuable. And he was very foolish in his mind to give them to her, and this is not the kind of information that a respectable businessman wants to have leaked out to others. And so he's thinking, let's keep this quiet and just hope nothing comes of it. Uh, On the other hand, He may believe that she really was a prostitute, and then he just feels very foolish for having entrusted her with these items. Um, It's amazing at this point to think about the kind of man we're seeing and the kind of man we're going to see Judah six chapters later. I mean, six chapters from now, Judah is going to have stepped up as the godly leader of the brothers apart from Joseph in Egypt. I mean, Judah is going to be the one who offers to put himself in prison so his younger brother can go free. We're going to see Judah speaking of his father with with, uh, respect and with honor. We're going to see Judah with a heart of love, Judah with concern for others. There's going to be remorse in Judah's voice as he talks about his past actions towards Joseph. The Judah that we're seeing now is not the Judah we're going to see in just a few chapters. This man is going to change. What a radical change, right? What a radical change to occur in the man that we've seen so far. Well, now is when the change begins. It's not when it completes, but this is where it begins. Judah, powerful, arrogant, is about to find himself humiliated, humbled, brought low by this Canaanite woman. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, 
Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Oh, the irony, right? How quick Judah is to condemn others for sins that he himself has committed. This woman has been immoral. How about you, Judah? Right? He's about to burn this woman alive for a crime that he's committed. He's got a plank, a mouth long, sticking out of his eye as he says, let her be burned. Verse 25, verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. He did not know her again. It's important to note that this whole matter did not remain private. This whole matter did not remain on the down low. We're told that Tamar sent word to Judah. Judah spoke, and when he spoke, he was not speaking to himself. There were other people involved in this circumstance. And so when Judah receives these items, it is in public. And it is now, and it's clear to everybody, he can't deny that he is the man by whom Tamar is pregnant. She had his family crest, his emblems, his staff. And so Judah is now known to be the father. And God uses this to bring about a true humbling and a confession of sin. Uh, Judah's words are, in the ESV it's translated, she is more righteous than I. Uh, in the Hebrew it's literally, she is righteous, not I. That's the better translation. She is righteous, not I. Uh, Rather than burn Tamar like he was about to do just moments before, he is now praising Tamar for her actions. He sees how he had mistreated her in the past and the courageous actions that she has taken to get back to the family that she was supposed to be with. She did not do this in a godly manner, but what Judah sees now is not Tamar's sins. What Judah sees now is his own sins. The first sign of his repentance is that he does not know her again. That would have been incest. But instead, he apparently brings her back into the family and begins to care for her. And so Judah's transformation has begun. Interestingly, Judah's life begins to change when he sees the items he had given to Tamar as a pledge and realized what he's done. The next time we see that word pledge in the book of Genesis, it will be Judah pledging to his father that he will take care of young Benjamin and ensure his safety. Judah, the one who sold his other younger brother for profit, is now going to be the one taking personal responsibility for the welfare of the younger brother. Uh, We're going to see leadership, courage, devotion, Folks, we're told in the book of Revelation that Judah's names is on one of the 12 walls of the, of the heavenly city. So, I mean, think about what that means for this man. At the end of this book, we're going to see him blessed by his father with a prophetic blessing that includes this promise, that a king's scepter will come from him, and that to this king will be the obedience of the peoples. Judah is going to be made an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the the lion of the tribe of Judah. By the way, Tamar, this Canaanite woman, 
is also brought in to Jesus' family tree. Look at our final verses, beginning in verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her room, and when she was in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. And therefore his name was Perez, which means a breach. Afterwards his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Why is this included in Genesis 38? Because Perez, technically the second born, because Zerah's hand came out first, will be the one chosen by God to have the Messiah come from his line. So, we've seen the main point laid out for us. God sometimes saves the unlikeliest of people in the unlikeliest of ways. What are a couple of implications for us? Number one, we ought to be humbled by this truth. It reminds us that God knows what He is doing and that He does what He does according to His plan and not according to ours. God is not bound by what we think is likely or unlikely. God is not bound by what we think is possible or impossible. God does not see things as you see things. Genesis 38 is God saying to us, My thoughts are not your ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And the ways of God surprise us time and again. And we see this often in His providential work of bringing people to salvation. Think about your own conversion. Think about all of the people and all of the circumstances that God used to draw you to Himself. Have you ever stopped and marveled at how God had already begun working to bring you to Himself even when you still cared nothing for Him? Of all of the strange and mysterious providences God has worked in your life, none has been more important than this, the way He worked in bringing you to the Lord Jesus. John Flavel says this, In nothing does providence shine forth more gloriously in this world than in ordering the occasions, instruments, and means of the conversion of the people of God. However skillfully providence's hand has molded your bodies, however tenderly it has preserved them, however bountifully it has provided for them, if it had not also ordered some means or other for your conversion, all of those other favors and benefits would have meant little. This, oh this, is the most excellent benefit you have ever received from its hand. Flavel goes on to recount some of the unlikely and surprising ways God has saved people in the past. We can think of some of these. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He's, he's on his way home. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah on his way back to Africa. He's struggling to understand what is Isaiah saying here? 
He wishes if only there was an interpreter, if only there was someone who could, who could explain these words to me. And he looks up, and who comes alongside his chariot? But Philip, brought there by the providence of God, able to open up the gospel, the, gospel, the, the book of Isaiah, and explain the gospel from that book, leading that man to Christ, who then, according to tradition, went home to Africa and began the very first church in the continent of Africa. We have Jesus on his way from Judea to Galilee. You've got to pass through Samaria if you're going to go from Judea to Galilee. Jesus finds himself in Samaria at Jacob's well right at noon, right at the same time that this Samaritan woman comes to get water from the well. She leaves saved, telling others about this man who knew so much about her. Had she come an hour earlier? Had she come an hour later? Had Jesus come an hour earlier? Had Jesus come an hour later? The story would not have been the same. God providentially ordered these things so that this woman would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Flavel writes about a Welsh man who bought an item from a local peddler. That peddler was also a minister, but not a very good one. And that minister, he would preach on Sundays, but also ran his little stall during the week. And a man came and bought an item from his stall, and not having something to wrap his item up with, he took one of his Christian books and tore a page out and wrapped the item in this page from the book. Well, the fellow took his item home, and the paper that it was wrapped in caught his eye. He read the paper, and the Lord used it to bring him to salvation. Uh, John Bunyan, ungodly young man, married a poor girl whose dead father had left her two books, The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven and The Practice of Piety. And we're told that once he was married, Bunyan would occasionally pick up those two books and just read from them, and that God used them to bring him to himself. Piper describes William Wilberforce, as a late-night, party-loving, upper-class unbeliever. That's exactly what he was. And William Wilberforce decided he was going to take a trip to the French Riviera. And he asked a friend of his from grammar school to come along, not knowing that his friend, Isaac Milner, was also a Christian and a convinced one. And they ended up spending a great deal of their trip to the French Riviera discussing Christianity and in a sweet twist of providence. In the very house in which they were staying, Wilberforce saw a book lying on the table of that house, a book called Philip, Philip, Philip Doddridge is the author, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. Church, I don't know if you're familiar with that book. It is amazing how many people were led to Christ by Philip Doddridge's book, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. Milner's, uh, Wilberforce's friend said, that's an awesome book, you need to pick it up, you need to read it. Wilberforce did. God used it mightily to draw him to Christ. And you know the rest of the story about ending slavery in England and all the things that Wilberforce did. Think of a man uh, who heard George Whitfield preach when he was a, a toddler, uh, younger, certainly younger than Jonathan's age, maybe a little older than Benjamin's age, not a toddler, but a young, a young child, and uh, heard Whitfield preach, wasn't a religious man the rest of his life. In his 80s, we're told that he was standing at his fence post, looking out over his field, and he remembered the words that Whitfield had preached seven decades earlier, and he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and was converted. A man named Virgilius determined he would increase his popularity in the Catholic Church by writing a book against Martin Luther and Luther's followers. 
And as he began to read Martin Luther's books in order to prove him wrong, the arguments won the day and saved his soul. He went to his brother, another zealous Roman Catholic, and his brother tried to reclaim him for the Catholic Church. But Virgilius kept giving him the writings of Luther, saying, just weigh the arguments, weigh the arguments. And in the end, they both came to know the Lord Jesus. Flavel tells us that Augustine was once preaching and right in the middle of his sermon forgot the point he was going to make. And he became flustered and wasn't sure what he was going to do. So he totally shifted and began talking about the errors of a group of people called the Manichees. This was not what he had prepared to do that night, uh, but he was working on a book, or at least he wrote a book on this. And so, so he just went off onto these errors of the Manichees uh, because it was the first thing that came to his mind. After he was preaching, one of the men of the congregation came to him, said, I was one of the Manichees, began to weep and to confess his sins, came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Flavel mentions one Sunday when a preacher got ready to preach, only to find he had left his notes at home and didn't have his sermon with him. Not only that, but in a strange twist of providence, he couldn't even remember what chapter he was supposed to be preaching from. And so standing before the congregation, he said, Church, just Give me a verse and I'll do my best to explain it, but I'm not prepared. Well, somebody gave him the verse 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness. And one of the members of the congregation came to Christ that day. We could go on, we could go on, we could go on. Couldn't we, right? Philippian jailer, he's just doing his job. And Paul and Silas are brought into his prison and God uses them to save his soul. Uh, There was a man uh, named Dr. Barnes put in prison under Bloody Mary, and it just so happened that this jailer, the guard who was supposed to keep watch over him, was converted to Christ by Dr. Barnes, and they shared the Lord's Supper together in his prison cell. Friends, if you are a Christian, take time to think about how this occurred. Trace God's providence. How did God bring you to the point where you came to truly know and love and desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see the people God used? Do you see the circumstances, maybe even strange circumstances, that God used to draw you to Himself? These things ought to humble us. These things ought to cause us to marvel. And then the second lesson we'll close like we did this morning. Not only should we be humbled by this truth, that God often saved the unlikeliest of people in the unlikeliest of ways, but we should be encouraged by this truth. We should be encouraged to continue in prayer. We should be encouraged to continue in witnessing. Even if with our eyes it appears that that person will never be saved, God does not see as you do. He is not limited by human restraints. God can break the hardest of hearts, and He can do so in the most surprising of ways. So do not lose heart. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, do not lose heart. Pray, pray, and keep on praying. Talk about Christ, talk about Christ, and keep on talking. And may God use us as instruments in His hands to bring many to know our Lord and our Savior. Amen? Amen.